The following audio is from First Hamilton Christian Reformed Church, where our vision is to be transformed by the gospel so that we can participate with God in his work of renewing all things in Christ. For more information about First Hamilton, visit www.firsthamilton.ca. Good morning, church. Uh, it's so good to be able to be with you and worship with you this morning. Uh, even, even though I can't see you, you can see me, so that's a step up from, uh, from last week. Uh, and so I invite you to join us as we open up God's Word. Uh, you would have already read in your uh, worship time with your family or, or uh, alone the passage from Matthew 21. Uh, and so I want you to just imagine yourself as being in a large crowd. Uh, maybe it was a, a New Year's Day or a Canada Day celebration. Uh, just imagine the feeling, right, that you get with being a part of something big. Right? Being in a large crowd gives us this sense of anticipation or anxiety or adrenaline. Whether it's waiting for the fireworks to start or just getting lost in the thick of it and, 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 and feeling overwhelmed. Right? Crowds are an intense experience. You may have noticed the past number of weeks that we have been looking at different biblical characters and the ways that they encountered God. Right? We looked at Abraham, who, saw, uh, who encountered God through sight. We looked at the disciples, who encountered God through taste and through smell. We saw Elijah, who went, uh, took a trip to the potter's house and was, was overcome by the touch of the potter. Each of these people experiencing God's love and grace and mercy, his character in unique ways. Now we've reached the end of our journey through Lent, and we're entering a different journey. A journey that we're, we're actually joining Christians all around the world in something called Holy Week. Beginning on Palm Sunday, ending on, on Easter next, next Sunday, Holy Week follows Jesus in the last week of his his life before the cross and the resurrection. Maybe you've colored the palm branches already this morning or read through the story uh, already. We have an opportunity this week to encounter God through the story, to see ourselves in the crowds in Jerusalem. And so I invite you to see yourself just close your eyes for a second and see yourself. Take a moment. Can you, can you imagine yourself in the time of Jesus, in the crowd, watching him ride on that donkey into Jerusalem? What are the smells going on? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? This passage, I think, intentionally stops at verse 9 because this is what we're to do. Place ourselves in the crowd and think about that question, who is Jesus? That would have been the burning question on that first Palm Sunday. We don't ask this question alone. People have been asking this question ever since he rode into Jerusalem on that donkey. Who is this man? Perhaps you're a person who calls yourself a Christian, who follows Jesus. You've been thinking to yourself, you know, every year, every Palm Sunday, it's the same story. Every time we talk about Jesus entering into Jerusalem on the donkey, why do we do that every year? Remember, even those of us who are followers of Jesus, we all are unbelievers in certain areas of our lives. 
Perhaps, though, um, you are listening to this as a skeptic, as a person in the crowd who doesn't identify as a Jesus follower. Maybe you put off this question, what do I think about Jesus? I want to remind you that none of us actually get to put this question off. All of us have to come to a decision. Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis was one he thought he had answered the Jesus question. Lewis grew up in a Christian home but soon rejected the faith of his parents. Although he liked the stories of miracles and hope, they seemed too far-fetched to be a reality. A virgin birth, a resurrection, a parting of the Red Sea, like, come on, seriously? But through conversations with his friend, J.R.R. Tolkien, he came to see things differently. The atheist scholar C.S. Lewis, the atheist Oxford scholar C.S. Lewis, weighed it out, wrestled with the question, who is Jesus, and came to a different answer. One of the reasons why Lewis was convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, was because of the disciples of Jesus themselves. These 12 men would have been among the crowds that first Palm Sunday. These disciples were people who had followed Jesus through his entire life and ministry. They, they followed him into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday. They, they continued the ministry after he rose again from the dead and ascended into heaven. And it's these men that were uh, one factor in C.S. Lewis coming to see Jesus as his Lord and Savior. Why? Christian author Lee Strobel writes this. He says, People will die for their religious beliefs if they sincerely believe that they are true. But people won't die for their religious beliefs if they know that their beliefs are false. While most people can only have faith that their beliefs are true, the disciples were in a position to know not just have faith, to know without a doubt whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. They claimed that they saw him, that they talked with him, that they ate with him. If they weren't absolutely certain of this, they would not have allowed themselves to be tortured to death for proclaiming that the resurrection had happened. So does this prove Jesus? No. But what it does it is it gives us one factor, one thing that compels us to keep digging, to keep considering the question, who is Jesus and what is his message for the world and what if the resurrection is true? Can you imagine yourself in this crowd this morning? The, the palm branches are waving. Can you imagine yourself peering over the shoulders of the person in front of you, waving your palm branches, or sitting on the shoulders of, of your parents for a better view? Who is Jesus? The Gospel writer Matthew goes out of his way to tell us two important things in this story about Jesus. One, that he is the King. Second, that he is the Messiah. And these two are worth looking into detail a little bit this morning. So first, he is King. Right, we see it in the story. Jesus plays the role of his own party organizer. He has prearranged the donkey for him to ride on and sends his disciples to get it and bring it to him. Right? He's the one who sets this whole thing into motion. Why is it so important for Jesus to ride on a donkey? Well, you see, Matthew 
the one who's writing this version of, of the story, is focusing on showing the J Jewish people that Jesus is the promised king. That he is the one that the prophets spoke about long ago. When the prophets, if you remember, are people who, who God chose for, uh, to, to give Israel messages on God's behalf. These were people like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel. And, and Matthew is using these people because it's building his case. They all pointed to a future king, one who would rule like David and would restore Israel. And the one in verse 5 that we read is a prophecy from Zechariah who tells Israel after they've come back from exile that there's going to be a future day where God will send them a new king to rule and establish the new Israel. Matthew quotes him and says, See, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, and the foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is showing the Jewish people that he is the one who God has sent to rule. So the disciples do what Jesus says. They get everything in order, and he begins riding the donkey toward Jerusalem. Now the crowds around him knew Jesus already. After all, they, they, Jesus had gotten a lot of attention from a lot of the miracles that he'd been doing and a lot of the things that he had been teaching. When they saw what Jesus was doing, some of them would have said to themselves, could this be the king? Right? And so they had been following him for some time. And then as Jesus rides into Jerusalem, the crowds ahead of him and those behind shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What these crowds said about Jesus would be a little like someone who, uh, seeing uh, the, the Blue Jays prospect, Vlad Guerrero Jr., you know, walking toward the Rogers Center with his, with his, uh, his baseball bat on his shoulder, seeing him getting up in the street corner and saying and shouting, you know, hey, everyone, this is, this is the new Joe Carter, right? He is going to save the Blue Jays, right? That would attract attention, attention wouldn't it? People, imagine the people that would come flooding around that scene in Toronto. Why? Because in Toronto, Joe Carter is a big deal. Being proclaimed as the son of David is a big deal. You may remember David. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. When Israel talked about the good old days, they talked about David. This is the son of David. This is the king that will make Israel great again. But it isn't just Israel. Remember that prophet Zechariah, the one who wrote about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, he also says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And in the day, that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name will be the only one. Zechariah brings us into the story. Jesus brings us into the story as he becomes the king of the world. So what do you think? Remember, you're in the crowd. Is Jesus your king? Right? Kings are people that we listen to, that we follow, bow down to, and worship. 
that we let speak into our lives and give them our full devotion and trust. Now, if you're like me, then maybe you have two thoughts running through your head. Yes, Jesus is my king. Of course he is. I love him. I follow him. He's my savior. He's my hope. And then, quickly, but no, I don't always obey him. It's like what Jesus says a few chapters later to the disciples. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We all have weak flesh, don't we? Let me tell you a story about, about that that's inside all of us. It's a story that was told by the preacher Charles Spurgeon. He says, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled over everything in the land. One day there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot. He took it to his king and said, My lord, this is the greatest carrot that I've ever grown and ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. The king was touched and discerned the man's heart. And so as he turned to go, the king said, Wait, hold on. You are clearly a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land freely as a gift, so you can garden it all. The gardener was amazed and delighted and went home rejoicing. But there was a nobleman at the king's court who overheard all this, and he said, my, that's what you get for a carrot. What if I gave the king something better? What if, what if I gave the king? And so the next day he came back and was leading a black, handsome stallion. And he said, as he bowed low to the king, My lord, I breed horses. And this is the greatest horse that I have bred and ever will breed. I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, Thank you. And he took the horse and dismissed him. The nobleman was perplexed. And so the king said, Let me explain. The gardener, the gardener was giving me a carrot. But you were giving yourself the horse. What the king means by this is that the man who gave the horse was, was being selfish. He wasn't thinking of the king. He was thinking of himself. And we look at the story and we say, you know, obviously we want to be the person who gave the carrot. And sometimes we are. Right? We do hand over the keys of our lives to Jesus as our king, not because of what we get, but typically because of who he is. And we say, oh, king, this is the greatest Part of me and I want to give it to you because I love you and I care for you, care about you, and I want to give my life to you. But often we approach Jesus like the man giving the horse. We like Jesus as our king because he gives us things. Things that we need or or things that we think we deserve. You know, what is your black stallion? Everyone has one. Everyone. The thing in our lives that we say, you know, Jesus, I'll give you my life if I can drive that car. 
Jesus, I'll, I'll give you my life if I can be friends with that person. Or I'll give you my, my life if I can keep that thing hidden. And I don't have to let it come to the surface and tell my parents or tell my spouse. Our black stallions can make us feel rather hopeless about ourselves, can't they? How can we have hope? Can we have hope if Jesus is the king of the world and demands complete devotion? I was reading a book by a pastor in Nashville named Scott Sauls this week, and he encourages us. He says this, One of the most encouraging things about the Bible is that all the screw-ups who are mentioned whom God loves in spite of themselves, in spite of themselves. The story traces back to the beginning where Adam and Eve, God's hum uh, humanity's prototype, and the first parents ate the forbidden fruit. Right? We know that story. And when they did, the curse fell. Every person, place, and thing was suddenly busted up and broken down. Spiritually, socially, culturally, humanity's Prayers and worship, marriages and parenting, friendships and work, right? All of it became doomed to wreckage in the wake of that foolish decision of theirs and of ours to seek our own independence from our maker, to give ourselves gifts. But then in, in comes the kindness of God with a blessing to reverse the curse, right? The promise, the seed of the woman will one day deliver a severe death blow to the head of the serpent. And all will be right with the world again. Resurrection and everlasting life. Death in reverse. The world of suffering and sorrow and regret and curses and groaning passed away. And everything made new because Jesus embraces the entire universe in his resurrected life. And after that promise, there came other people in the Bible story, right? Noah got drunk. Abraham offered his wife up to be abducted twice in order to protect his own hide. Jacob, whose name means deceiver, was a perpetual liar. David, the great King David, the one who the prophets spoke that would be the, the greater King David. But David committed adultery and murder. Solomon, David's son, was a womanizer and an idolater. Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul the Apostle, was an abusive bully and called himself the chief of sinners. This is the community to which we have been called by God, a community that includes drunks and bad husbands and liars and killers and womanizers and idolaters and bullies. How does that make you feel? Scott says it makes me feel hopeful. Even irresistibly drawn to such community. Because if there's room in God's house for these broken, busted up, sinful, black stallion giving people, then there's also room in God's house for me. Jesus is not just a king. He's our Messiah.
Jesus is the serpent-crushing Son of Man that was promised in Genesis. He is more than the promised King. He's also the promised Messiah. How do we know this? Because Jesus didn't ride into Jerusalem on a war horse with a flashy chariot and a spear in his hand saying, Look at me, I'm your king. See, people would have expected this type of entry. This would have been typical for kings as they come into their capital city. But Jesus is a different kind of king. He's the Messiah king. He's the savior of the world. And he was fighting a different battle. A battle that he wins by losing. He's the serpent-crushing Messiah. And so he rides a humble, lowly, forgettable donkey. What if we find ourselves in the crowds and keep following Jesus into Jerusalem on that Palm Sunday? Where does he go eventually? Right? Where, is the, where does the path take him? Does it lead him to the palace? No. Does he go to the high throne? No. Does he get a, king, a crown? Not right away. Jesus' triumphant entry leads him eventually to the cross. And the cross is actually the place of his enthronement. It's the place where he receives his crown, the crown of thorns, and where he becomes our Messiah with a sign above his head that said, Jesus, the King of the Jews. The cross is the place where he becomes our Savior, where he takes the weight of us busted up, broken, sinful, black stallion, giving people upon his own shoulders and dies. Can we see in Jesus the power of God? Can we see in Jesus that God's power to face death is greater than even death itself? That the donkey riding Jesus goes to the cross for us, goes to the grave for us, and on the third day reverses the curse. Resurrection begins. The world of suffering and sorrow and regret and curses and groaning passed away and everything was made new because Jesus embraces the entire universe in his resurrected life. This, this church is the power of Jesus at work in us too. It starts on Palm Sunday as Jesus marches into Jerusalem on a donkey. Andy Crouch talks about the unique power that Jesus' followers become in the world when they take seriously the donkey-riding Messiah King that they follow, the one who went to the cross for them and defeated death for them. Using the image of rock climbing or a ropes course, Andy says this. He says that the triple-tested security of the ropes on the ropes course makes visible for us the essential wager of the Christian life. The question, are we ultimately vulnerable 
Is everything at risk in this life? Interesting to hear those words quoted in a book in a time that vulnerable and risk are top in our news feeds. Are we ultimately vulnerable? Is everything at risk in this life with no belays, no harnesses, no one holding on 